1: This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. What does it feel like to be a student with dyslexia? Do some forms of teaching create more powerful learning? And what is the real meaning and purpose of letter grades? This thought-provoking episode holds the answers to these questions. Today's episode is one of the most quotable episodes we've had. We've had a few like this one, Michael Wesch's episode number 25, for instance. You'll want to listen closely because of the power-packed educational perspectives of this master educator that we are interviewing today. Stephen Brawley is currently a superintendent of a large K-12 private school district. He's been a K-8 principal and teacher. He's also taught in high school. I've seen him in action, and he is an inspiring and inspired educator. Today's episode is very candid, and we don't pull any punches about the challenges in education. So strap yourself in for a powerful ride. So my guest today is Stephen Brawley. Stephen describes himself as an educator. In fact, he says that he has always been an educator, and that, that is his most loved accomplishment. He has been a principal and classroom teacher in small schools, boarding schools, and in schools with multi-grade classrooms. He's currently the district superintendent for the second largest private school system in the world. And his district covers the state of Kentucky and half of Tennessee. So, Stephen, tell us a little more about how you got to this place.
0: Willing. Being willing. Now, I started out in school, actually going to school with you in boarding academy. And uh, getting into trouble and out of trouble and learning how to negotiate uh, education in general. It seemed to come natural to you. It never came natural to me, whether you agree with that or not.
1: I'm not sure I do, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't tend to to lean on it very much, uh, but having dyslexia made it a challenge to to be uh, in traditional education, and that was one of the wonderful things about where we went to high school, because it it not only matched the academics, but also the hands-on and and so forth, And, and so we got... Into that, and I, so I got inspired by good teachers and motivated by not so good teachers. And so I can remember my senior year as it was winding down. You know, you got to pick what you are going to do in college. Um, I had the, uh, the the book out, looking at all the degrees, and just you know, for good or ill, I had xed out certain things because I thought I wasn't good at it. You know, I had xed out math and science, quite honestly, because they had been such a struggle. But I loved history, loved storytelling and all those things, and, and I wanted to be involved in education. Positive side because of the inspiration I'd had, but then also there was some negative inspiration as well. I, I wanted to make sure that if I could be a better teacher than some of my worst teachers, that I would try and do that for students. So I picked education as my major. And then right after that, moved in to, to working at uh, youth camp and did that for nine years. So I actually include that in my, my education uh, experience. I was a boys counselor with you know up to 20 kids and boys from various ages, trying to make sure that they didn't get lost in the woods. Uh, taught horsemanship and, and horseback riding, and then became associate director of the camp eventually, and then finally graduated with my education degree and, and started teaching. And I have never looked back. Teaching is a passion. Uh, and whether it's kids or adults, it's really the sharing of the learning experience. It's always been inspirational.
1: So I can pull a couple of cards because I know things that I shouldn't know. So I'm going <laughs> to ask you this um, right. because we've had conversations. You you mentioned that you x out math and science, but I know that uh, at later points in your life, you kind of revisited some of that. Tell us about that.
0: Well, so I had an opportunity about um, six years ago to, to change what I was doing. I'd been working in secondary, and that was really all I ever thought I wanted to do. You know, I looked at the elementary ed majors, and you kind of snickered as a secondary. You know, you'd look at their portfolios, and it had glitter and glue and, and things <laughs> falling out of the you know the, the portfolios. And then you'd look at a secondary majors, and it all stacked neatly and, and fit within the binders. And... uh I thought that was special. Really now, working in both secondary and elementary, uh, that was silly. I I shouldn't have done that. The Lord found a way to to humble me. I got called to work in the elementary school system after spending most of my career in in secondary and uh, taught in a multi-grade room, uh, 7th and 8th grade, all subjects, uh, which meant I had to teach math and science. And so I had to reevaluate it and it became an inspiration I, learning how to teach math and science actually taught me math and science um and it was probably one of the best blessings I've ever had in my life if you ask me now what I would enjoy most teaching uh, it's math that's weird and, and really it's <laughs> no you know me
1: for for a history major that is that is a little unusual
0: <laughs> it is uh, and you know me uh, to say that math is one of my favorite subjects to teach would have been something if i would traveled back in time
1: i wouldn't have believed it, it. No. 20 years ago i would have i would have said <laughs> this was not the right person i somehow someone abducted you and put some a robot in your place
0: <laughs> well and i and i'll tell you what it was it was finally seeing other students struggle and saying you know what i struggled with the exact same thing and by tomorrow morning i'm going to know this well enough so that, that they know it, and they can find maybe an opportunity that I had X'd off the list. That, to me, is one of the greatest frustrations, because I find a love that I didn't know I had, and I don't want to shortchange a student that might have that love and, and lose out. I mean, I don't know how much wonderful math knowledge I could have, you know, bumped up against if I hadn't just x that off the list to begin with. And so... It became one of those things I, I was passionate about. And specifically what, what really inspired me was to find those students that didn't have that confidence in math. A lot of times, you know, it was, it was the girls, especially when you got into seventh and eighth grade, um, where you would hear, you know, my mom wasn't good at this, and, and so I'll never be good at this, and, and I'm, I, why would I try? And so I spent a lot of time working with them along with other students, uh, but it was one of my greatest joys to see their math grades climb, you know, as we went through um, the years with them, and to see them start to raise their hand to answer questions with confidence, uh, because you knew. I, some of these, these kids, they, they knew the answers, but they weren't confident enough to, to share, and I know what that's like, and I know where, the, where that is, that place where you just, you question it, and Someone else surely knows the answer, and and so I'm going to let them do it. And to see that transformation from from being at the back of the class, you know, trying to hide to being at the front with just that excitement of I know the answer and I know how to explain it is special. I'm glad I I, I had that experience. I don't know that I ever would have given myself the opportunity
1: to do that. Well, you've had lots of opportunity, and so you're going to be – biased when I ask you this next question, but you know we always kind of go here. Let's go back in time because I'm actually curious because you mentioned dyslexia and you mentioned a couple of like hints of things. Hmm. What was it like for you as an elementary student and as a uh, middle school, high school student, as a college student? Share with us that experience that led to education.
0: Hmm. Elementary school. I don't know. I have a mixed bag of of remembrances. I, I, I remember... My special ed teachers, and they have a special place in my heart um, because they work extra hard. So much so now that some of the things that I use to compensate, I don't even realize I'm doing. But elementary school at times, very place to be, um, especially early on when I didn't understand why I couldn't learn like everybody else in the room. Um, One of my my most vivid memories, I can close my eyes today and go right back to that spot, and and the emotions start to well up. Um, First day of school, I'm sitting in class, and the teacher's just trying to gauge where everybody's at. And she says, get out a piece of paper and a pencil and write your ABCs. And I couldn't. I can see the ABC chart, you know, the old ABC chart that, that was always above the, the whiteboard or the chalkboard at that point. Um, it was there. I, I can see it now, but I, I I I couldn't even copy it from the board. And I can remember sitting there watching everybody else, you know, move in, and their pencils were going, and all I could do was put my head down on the desk. And... Mm-hmm. I just remember wondering, why is this so easy for everybody else? And I can't figure it out. Um, and so elementary school is hard, um, because you don't want to be different. You know, you want to be able to do what everybody else is doing. Um, and yet, in those struggles, um, I can't trade them for anything. They, they are what make me who I am. And, you know, at that time, special ed was was something you, you went to. So you had to do that walk, you know, during math class and spelling um, out, out of the classroom and down the hall. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that was a bad thing. Um, because where I went to was a place uh, of safety and, and of learning. And they could meet me where I was at, and we could go from there. And I didn't have to hide it or try and bluff my way through. Um, A dyslexic is a wonderful bluffer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, we will pick up on on cues and and things and piece together an answer, and it'll look like we know um, something that sometimes we don't. And we'll read people, Um, and that's something that's a skill that I use every day now. Um, And so when we get to academy um, in high school, uh, again, you're talking about a teenager who's trying to fit in and not be different. Um, It's not until you get later on in your high school, you know, after you pass your freshman year, that that being different is a badge of honor. Uh, and we definitely owned that badge. Okay? I remember. Um, uh, but even then, uh, my learning difficulties—I tried to hide. Uh, it wasn't until after I graduated from college that I stopped trying to hide that I was dyslexic. Um, you know, I, I did everything I could to try and make sure that nobody knew, even when it meant coming close to failing some. So trying to read measurements on the tape measure when we were trying to do welding and things like that. Um, If I could uh, not pick that as one of the things I did, you know, Hey, can you measure this and I'll, I'll hold it. (laughs) Oh, I see. That's why
1: you ended up holding things a lot.
0: Yeah. And getting electrocuted by you. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I didn't have anything to do with that.
1: So looking at those experiences, you know, it seemed like this, you know, this particular aspect of the dyslexia, it kind of wrote a large piece of that story for you.
0: It did, but I don't, I don't want it to define me, if that makes sense. Yes, it is a part of who I am and it is part of what I use, you know, every day. But it doesn't define me or what I do, and I think that's important.
1: All right. With this backdrop of having these experiences as a a student who struggled in the system, as a student who had good teachers and bad teachers, as a teacher yourself through the classroom, what do you think is the most important thing in being a principal or being a superintendent when you bring that to the classroom or to to a a bunch of classrooms?
0: Uh, For me, being an administrator has never meant sitting behind the desk. Uh, It's meant being out and being around. No problems typically happen in your office. You know, they happen out in the halls and in the classroom. So if you're never out there with the students, with the staff, you don't really know what's happening. You play to your strengths, and and my strengths were relationships. And so you tried to form relationships. You know, most of, I did not have a lot of disciplinary problems in my classroom because I had a good relationship with my students. And so when, when there was a problem, you already had a baseline to deal with those things, you know, and they already trusted you with, with something. And so and the same goes for adults. Uh, sometimes adults act just like your students.
1: Now, come on. <laughs> <laughs> We're so much more mature. Uh,
0: sometimes, yes, um, and sometimes not. Uh, human nature doesn't have an age.
1: So we have had the opportunity to have many discussions like this. Tell me a little bit about your philosophy of education, because I, I don't often have an educator with the same kind of experience you have. Uh, how do you approach your students? I mean, we've been seeing bits and pieces of that, but put together a picture for us of, of what it looks like to be a good educator.
0: I, I think it's about connections. We tend to departmentalize not only the academics, but the rest. but And we never look at a student as a whole being. And, and I think education was always meant to be the whole picture. And so math wasn't just supposed to stay in the math book. You know, you, we find math in history. And we find, you know, English in math, believe it or not. Uh, and so finding those connections... So that a student has the aha moment is when they see the connections with something that they have interest or experience in with something they don't. And that's when it makes sense. And so for a teacher educating students, it means working extra hard to find those connections. What, did, what matters to my students and how can I bring what matters to them into something that they don't think does matter? The student in the back of the room who's daydreaming—what is he daydreaming about? If I can, if I can tap into those daydreams and show him a connection with what we're trying to learn today, can I get him excited about it? And so, yeah, that's in, a, in a broad strokes. It's connections. I think the other thing, uh, as far as philosophy is, is education has to be practical. It cannot just stay. Intellectual, uh, and that's another issue that, that we've had, not only in public education, which which I went to public school um, as well as private school, it's one of the things that we daily struggle with, and that's continuing to keep education practical. It has to have a practical application, and it's one of the things that I, I love about the core of our education system was built on the idea that liberal arts were always meant to be with practical skills. And so if you were learning to be a history teacher, you also needed to have practical skills and learn how to take care of a car and and weld pipe and build a house and and do plumbing and lay brick and do all of those things um, because that was life I can't tell you how often that has saved me from having to pay somebody <laughs> a lot of a lot of money when it was just a simple pipe that needed to be replaced. And those skills, I believe, are linked. And I think that that's part of what we need to, to come back to. Our students, you know, that, that butt time the, the, the where they're, seat, they're seated and they're listening, we have too much of sometimes. Let's get them out into the world and and into the the woods and and practicing what they know. It's one of the things that that, uh, Now I could really get on a roll on this.
1: Well, I was going to actually ask you to elaborate on where it seems you're going to head in this direction, but specifically maybe address differences that you've seen in maybe different secondary education situations, because in secondary education, we have a tendency to have more seat time and less hands-on time. And you've had the opportunity to see both sides of that. Tell us a little bit about your experience with both of those, and what you think the educational advantages are.
0: All right. Well, so we have to do a history lesson. Our system, uh, the Adventist school system, was created in the late 1800s to be very practical. It was never just meant to be philosophical, and so uh, and it actually followed a trend in education in the in the uh, 1700s and the 1800s in America. Uh, matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson, when he founded uh, the University of Virginia, meant it to be a practical university. Um, he wanted to strip away pomp and circumstance and make things practical. Unfortunately, over time, those things were brought back in, and so that that was always part of what our system was supposed to be. We weren't supposed to have competitive testing which was something that was all the way back in the European system. They, they actually encouraged competitive testing, um, and that was part of what they felt made you stronger. They wanted repetition in order to drown out individuality. Um, competitive testing was, was meant to, to put someone else down above someone else, and all of those things were part of what was encouraged. And, uh, in America, they tried to pull away from that, and our system kind of was birthed in that. Uh, American Revolution in education as well. Um, And so when we talk about high school, you were supposed to have not only the academics, but you were supposed to have practical skills being learned as well. And so, um, you know, you might have all of your academic classes in the morning, and then you went and you did something practical, uh, worked on the farm, built a home, learned something with your hands out, and then by doing those alongside with your teachers. And see, now that's something that you don't see very often anymore. So your math teacher would would teach you math in the morning, and then he'd be using math to help build the house uh, down the road. And you were there with him doing that. And so you were learning something in the classroom, and then you were practically applying it. In both um, instances, we're a classroom. And that is something... That I've always felt has been important. Unfortunately, it's under threat now. Um, we fight the same
1: fights. So it it appeals emotionally to me. Do you know if there are uh, case studies or if people have looked into the data behind the the type of learning or the depth of learning? Well, e- even if it's just anecdotal evidence, what what do we know about the differences between you know learning from seat time and learning from hands-on work time?
0: Well, I. You have an interesting study that was done by the Adventist school system called Cognitive Genesis, um, which actually evaluated how our school system was doing compared to as many private school systems and public school systems we could find. And uh, we actually came up with uh, some interesting things. Um, I gave you that link. You can link to the website. So if a student spent seven years in elementary school, eight years of elementary school with us, they were scoring on average 73rd percentile. And that held through high school. And so they were scoring at a 73rd percentile instead of the average 50. And that was across the board, irregardless of their background. Our school system does not just take elite students. We, we operate in you know inner cities and sp- small towns all over the united states and around the world and uh, if you take a cross section of our population student population it's it's almost identical to the public school systems set up so you've got low income and high income and, and middle income and so across the board you see a, a two or three grade level jump when you compare those students and so part of that is the value of non seat time learning and I hinted at it, we are kind of under attack with it now, too. Unfortunately, the pull in education seems to always be back to putting a kid's butt in the seat. And so here's something that we've been doing since the late 1800s, and now we're also fighting trying to, to keep that as a value. And so that's something now that I as a superintendent, Uh, You know, it's something I fought as a principal, and now I'm fighting as a superintendent. How can we keep our system complete and whole? You know, looking at the whole student and and all of their needs. And one of those needs is not only just physical activity, but meaningful physical activity, so that they're learning practical skills, not just academic skills.
1: So it's it's hard for me not to, to comment here a little bit, because a large fraction of our philosophy at Tabletop Inventing is around the idea of uh, applying your learning that real world problems don't fit neatly on a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper. (laughs) And so the number of connections just from a neural perspective are much higher because you are having to reach into different parts of your brain to solve this problem. I mean, there's, good research out there that says that when you make connections like that that your learning does deepen and that's just a you know that's just basic cognitive uh, development the question that I, that I keep coming back to you know in this because uh, i guess i haven't i don't think of this as a from a systemic issue because i'm not responsible for what the public schools do um mm. you know or what private schools do in their systems but i do do often wonder if the data suggests that cross fertilization in your mind when you are working with your hands gives you a, a richer learning experience. What is it that's pulling us back constantly to this you know we have to test this or we have to you know we have to repeat this a lot more often. I mean what is that what is that magnetic pull? I mean I had we had, we had a guest from from China, um, uh, his name was Zhang Zhao on earlier uh, last year and I mean he he had the same question, you know why is it we keep getting pulled back to this type of a system because the data tells us that that doesn't work?
0: The short answer is fear. I really do believe it's fear. You have school systems, any school system, has to find a way of accountability. And what's the easiest way to show accountability? Test scores. Numbers. They're easy. You know, you can put them on a pie chart and put them on a graph and show them, and we're up, we're down, we're this, we're that. And it's very quantifiable. Uh, But we're dealing with more than just numbers. We forget that a lot of times in education. Kids are not just a number. A teacher is not just a number. And so we have to fight that fear that, that drives us to, well, I have to know everything and I have to control everything and I have to quantify it. And we look for the easiest, quickest way to quantify because it's the easiest and quickest way. But I think as an educator and as a, as a leader, you can't just look for the easy way. If you're going to look at the whole student, there is not going to be an easy way and a quick way to quantify. You know, We want to move away from ABCs and grades, and we want to move a student past that to where they take learning as something that, that is who they are. And we get fight back from students and from parents and from teachers because that's harder to quantify, and if I can't quantify it easily, then how do I know what's happening? I get that a lot. You try and sit down with with a parent and and talk about how their student is doing, and the only yardstick that they have been taught to use are grades, and they think they know what an A means, and they think they know what an F means, but when it comes down to it, do they really, and, and I'll Step on a view. Do teachers really understand what an A means or an F means? If you really put them to it, you know, is it just a percentage of how many answers you got right or wrong? Or is it a reflection of what a child really knows? And, and see, we, we stray from that. What is it we really want a child to know? Is it the the one-two-threes and the ABCs, or is it an understanding of how they learn, so that whether they have a teacher in front of them or a book beside them, they know how to figure something out?
1: You're certainly preaching to the choir (laughs) choir on this one, and I I don't normally quote Matthew McConaughey on my podcast, but uh, uh, there's a great line from the movie Interstellar where he's uh, having that teacher conference. And his son is getting poor grades. And he looks across the desk at the principal and the teacher and he says, you're telling me that it takes two numbers to decide the pants I'm wearing, but it only takes one number to quantify the intelligence of my son. And I would agree with, with your assessment there that, that that A, or that whatever percentage we use to to get that A, doesn't talk about intelligence. It only talks, like you said, about the, the number of right and wrong answers. And the student may not care whether they're getting right or wrong answers. I mean, I bet there's a bunch of smart kids out there that get bad grades. Yeah.
0: Well, we have evidence of that. And, and you know, you ask, if it's so obvious, why do we keep doing it? If you ask any teacher, they know that the system we use to quantify students only takes a small sliver of what a what student actually is. And yet, because a system has to find a way to quantify what's done, um, they have to rely on those numbers. And then it gets even simplified even further than that. So now I don't just take a a year's worth of numbers. I have to do it in one test or two tests every year. What happens if that kid is sick and he comes to school anyway and, you know, he's got a headache and a fever of 102 and he's taking that test? Uh, What is that really telling me? It's telling me he's sick because he's not doing well on that test. But I don't know that unless I know that kid. And I know his story of him coming in, and he didn't have breakfast, and he puked in the car before he got out. Um, And he's there anyway because mom and dad are working, and, and they can't find a babysitter. And so he's there anyway. That ITBS test says nothing about what he actually knows. It really even doesn't say anything about his intelligence. If I look at that number and I know the whole story and I know the complete student, what that number tells me is he was sick because he's not performing at his full capability. But you don't know that when you see that test score. That's not anywhere on the sheet and the explanation. And I think that's something we always have to remember. A test is a snapshot which is a tool a teacher uses to help evaluate where a student is at that moment and how they can help them get to the next step, the next level. That's it. Um, We use tests and evaluations for things they were never designed to do, and that's part of the problem. Education, true education, is always meant to be something that's done um, collaboratively so that it recognizes the, an individual's needs and works to perfect what that individual needs and wants to do. And that was what our system was originally designed to take into account. And I think that that's what any education that's good tries to do. It's a collaborative act.
1: Well, if I let you, and if you let me, we would talk about this for another hour and a half. But uh, we yes. try to keep the podcast down to something that's uh, digestible on a commute to work, um, If you live in Southern California, it might take two of them. (laughs) But I wanted to get down to the last two questions, and I might combine them a little bit. Uh, And I know that you listen enough to the podcast that you know what they are, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Um, The first one is, you know, in the digital age, what does it mean to be educated? Tell me about that.
0: I really believe that we, we make a mistake when we see education as a destination. Uh, being educated is broader than just academics or facts you can find in Wikipedia or uh, Google. Education doesn't relieve us from the hard work and hard labor. Instead, education allows us to see its real value. So that hard work uh, I value. That, the time I spend looking for an answer is valuable. And so the pursuit of knowledge, truth, integrity, purity, honor are all natural states that I believe we were created to be learners forever. And so it's not being educated. It's a state of being. It's an acknowledgment of of what we were designed to do. We were always designed to learn. And so it's a process that, that you never arrive at, at that point.
1: So you've touched on the second question, which is what is the purpose of an education? So why don't you uh, round that out?
0: Okay. Um, The purpose of an education, um, I believe, helps us be equipped for service. Education helps us find our purpose. Education makes us masters of our circumstances. It gives us breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and the courage of our convictions. Some of this might sound familiar (laughs) um, to you. Um, Education alone doesn't get us anywhere it has to have purpose and and i see that every day when you when you see the lights come on in a kid it's because they've taken a fact or a figure and they found out how it's it's used and and the purpose of it and so the purpose of education is to serve and be purposeful
1: well i think we'll wrap it right there Thank you, Stephen, for taking time to uh, let us look behind the scenes a little bit. If our audience is interested in uh, reaching out to you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: They can visit um, the website, teachsda.org. They can find me at uh, Stephen Brawley on Twitter, um, or they can email me, um, sbrawley at kytn.net. Any of those will get, get me.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Steven and I have been good friends for more than 25 years and I've always respected his ability to lead and to teach he is genuine thoughtful and caring so when I think about a good classroom experience he is one of the models that comes to my mind and it's no coincidence that at tabletop inventing we've modeled our inventor camps after some of the most engaging and inspiring educators we know inventor camp is just popping with excitement and learning the technology is powerful, and we don't dumb down the intensity. Students get flooded with real scenarios and versatile real tools such as 3D printers, computer programming, and electronics. We often have parents and students tell us, we can't believe so much learning happened in just four days. To learn more about Inventor Camp, go to ttinvent.com slash Camp. All one word, ttinvent.com slash Inventor Camp. Don't put it off. The future is waiting.